Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Dallas's Classical Education Graduate Program. With a dedicated faculty and staff drawing on extensive experience in the classical tradition, the Classical Education Graduate Program benefits from the strength of the university's nationally recognized core curriculum, which embodies the UD's dedication to the pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue as the proper and primary ends of education. The Classical Education Graduate Program combines the ethos of this core curriculum with a concentration on the theory and practice of classical education, bringing these to the working and aspiring classical teachers, school administrators, and home educators around the country. Earn a classical teaching certificate, a Master of Humanities degree, or a Master of Arts degree in classical education. With an extensive array of online courses, the program is designed to meet the schedules of busy classroom and homeschool teachers. In addition, for a limited time, the classical education program at the University of Dallas has scholarships available that can reduce the cost of the program by up to 90%. That's 90, 90%. Don't miss out on this opportunity today. Visit udallas.edu slash classical ed to start your application. Again, that is udallas.edu slash classical ed. Welcome back to the Forma podcast from the Circe Institute Podcast Network, a podcast about the intersection of classical thoughts and contemporary culture, and also the audio companion to Forma Journal. I'm Heidi White. And in this episode, I speak with David Hicks. David Hicks, you are the David Hicks around the Circe Institute and for our listeners at Forma. So we're just so thrilled for you to be here. Thank you so much. Well, it's a pleasure to talk with you. <laughs> an honor to have been invited. Thank you. Oh, this is so exciting. Well, listeners, I'll tell you a little bit about the illustrious David Hicks. Uh, he retired in 2015 as the chief academic officer from, is it Meritas? Is that how you say that? Yes. Meritas, a company based in Chicago that owned and operated K-12 college preparatory schools worldwide. And before joining Meritas, Hicks spent 30 years in independent education, heading St. Andrew's Episcopal School in Jackson, Mississippi, St. Mark's School of Texas in Dallas, St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire, and the Darlington School in Rome, Georgia. And Hicks has served on numerous boards throughout the world. In 1981, his book, Norms and Nobility, A Treatise on Education, won the Outstanding Book Award for Education from the American Library Association. And in 1996, Hicks created a stir in boarding school communities around the United States when he published his essay, The Strange Fates of the American Boarding School in the American Scholar. And his and his brother Scott's translation of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations was published by Scribner in the Emperor's handbook in 2002. And Hicks and his wife, Mary Elizabeth, have four grown children and live on a ranch called West of the Moon, off the grid near Harrison, Montana. And their ranch is in a life estate to St. Peter's Monastery. 
Their family owns and operates a USDA certified organic market farm called Three Hearts Farm, growing over 100 varieties of vegetables in Bozeman, where they are also members of St. Anthony the Great Orthodox Church. Now, that is quite an illustrious bio. And I love, I just, I love, David, that you are a a man of many ways in the best of senses. Uh, that, um, uh, so uh, thank you so much. All right. Well, let's talk. We're here today to talk about one particular of your many ways, uh, your new translation of Plutarch's lives called The Lawgivers, newly published by the Circe Institute. So first off, why? Why a new translation of Plutarch's lives, David? Well, the first and most simple answer is that Cersei asked, approached us and asked us if we'd do this a year ago. <laughs> that's a good so reason. That's why we, why we did it. Actually, we had already been doing some, uh, just for personal reasons, translations of his letters. And uh, it was an ironic, it, it was ironic that uh, David should contact me and ask if we would do some of the lives. And of course, I think Cersei's reason, and that, this would be a good question to ask them, is they're aware that the Charlotte Mason fans and other individuals in the classical Christian world, as well as the homeschooling world, are very interested in Plutarch. He's, mm-hmm. he's uh, one of the greatest writers and most consulted writers of the Western tradition, uh, but someone who has... Uh, he can be very difficult for young people to read, which is ironic because he wrote his lives specifically the course of his lifetime for young people. And we can talk maybe a little bit about what his motivations for doing that might have been. But at any rate, it's ironic that, that young people today have difficulty with them, partly because of the nature of the translations, mm. but also because they, um, of course, don't live in his in his world and aren't aware often of the illusions he's making, uh, what's behind what he's saying, uh, the, the places and people he mentions, these are all strange names to them. And uh, therefore they miss a lot of the richness, uh, you know, the, the sort of uh, granularity of his writing. So what we try to do is give them a translation that is faithful to the Greek but is also the type of English that we're used to reading and writing nowadays. Uh, and, uh, and also then to provide illustrations, a lot of annotations, which help particularly young people understand the illusions he's making. And, and uh, we raise questions about some of the ideas he's presenting since he's a Platonist. So we're hoping that this book will be not only fun to read for young people, but allow those who want to sort of dive into some of the issues he's raising, uh, give them a, a diving platform, as it were. Right. Well, most of our listeners uh, are very likely familiar with at least the name Plutarch. And as you mentioned, particularly those who follow Charlotte Mason's principles or integrate Charlotte Mason into the classical tradition, but perhaps fewer have read the lives or really know much about Plutarch. Will you tell us a little bit about Plutarch, the man, and then also his work in the lives? Well, he, he was, uh, you know, as I write in the introduction to the book, it's uh, rather amazing that uh, Plutarch, who lived after 
Caesar, sort of during the time, uh, the beginning of the so-called good emperors, lived in a small village in, in mainland Greece, wrote in Greek, and was in fact, you know, this person who wrote all of this material that was preserved and was thought of as this great sort of compiler of the classical tradition, while at the same time he served, you know, he was a faithful, he was a Greek, but a faithful citizen of Rome. And uh, he was also, which is kind of interesting to us, he was one of the two chief priests at the Temple of Delphi, which was a day's walk away from his little village of Koronia. He visited Rome often. He knew a lot of the major or the significant Romans of the time. Mm. And, uh, but he was a country gentleman and, mm. and a man of, of leisure in the, in the ancient Greek sense of that term. So he's, he's an interesting fellow. His decision, he had this idea, which is not, it seems to us a natural idea, those of us who've read or who have, are looking at Greece and Rome from this great distance. But at the time, it wasn't obvious. He, he, he came up with this idea of pairing the lives of notable Greeks with the lives of notable Romans and writing these lives of them and this is what he calls parallel lives. Hmm. Um, this is not, in, in his time, this was thought to be quite innovative because you also have to remember that, you know, Greece is nothing like Rome. I mean, it's, we, we tend to sort of push the two together in mm-hmm. tradition. But Greece was an was a area, a large area of small city-states, many of whom differed dramatically from one another. And uh, were constantly at war with one another and uh, also had this very strong democratic element as, as well as a huge tradition of literature and letters and history and the arts and all of that, which Rome kind of took over. But Rome is, uh, on the contrary, it's one very, um, well, initially what they called Republican was really oligarchical in a, in a Greek sense. And by the time Plutarch came along, it was a dictatorship, a, a mm. emperor, a very, you know, a pretty ruthless, brutal empire that um, had this sort of Greek patina thrown over it. You know, many of the Romans, many of their teachers or tutors were Greeks, but we have to also remember those Greeks were also slaves. Mm. And, um, so we have, so the idea of kind of comparing Greece this very multi-various, cultured, literary world with Rome, which is very different from that, and comparing their significant persons with each other. It's an, it's an innovative idea. And, huh. uh, and I think Plutarch, to sum up this long, Wendy's response, is uh, Plutarch, we owe to Plutarch a lot of our own inherited view of why we put Greece and Rome together because huh. he, he put them together. And so when we read this, we should always bear in mind when we read Plutarch that he's engaged in a very creative activity as well as a historical one. Hmm. So David, what is the, the subject of Plutarch's lives? And I mean, I, I, I really mean something more than the obvious, the lives of the people he's writing about. Perhaps I mean what, problem 
or problems uh, is Plutarch trying to address in the lives and, and maybe what solutions does he offer? And even more specifically, why does he write lives instead of, say, essays or myths? Well, uh, let, let me return to the idea that he's writing this for young people. Hmm. Most modern scholars agree that that was his intention. He wanted this to be read by young people. He was himself a teacher hmm. and worked with young people. A lot of his, his other major work, which is a compilation of his letters and essays, which we call the Moralia, uh, a lot of those letters are letters uh, to young people. Giving them advice about one thing or the other. And I think what he's really trying to achieve here, which is part of the whole rhetorical tradition, and as you know, it's a part of this whole classical and Christian tradition that we're trying to keep alive and, and if anything, uh, restore in our country, is the idea that you read the past, not just as a series of events, but you're, you're pulling from the past the examples of excellence that inform your behavior and your thoughts in the present. Mm. So there's a purpose in reading. Uh, his purpose in writing about these lives is not to just give us a history of these lives, but to pull from the lives those elements that he believed were worthy of emulation, that young people ought to admire. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that he ignores the negatives that affect all of us, all of our lives. He, he's honest about that. But he tries to talk specifically and, and emphasize those aspects of his lives that, again, are worthy of imitation, that he thinks are admirable. So that's, that is why I think he wrote... That's what he's trying. If you, if you, I don't know if you t would put it, in, Heidi, in the form of a problem, but that's what he's trying to bring out in the lives of the people he writes about. Right, right. So Plutarch wrote twenty-three parallel lives. Is that correct? Is that the right number? Yes, we don't have all of the parallels, and we don't have all the comparative essays. Yes, but that's that's what we have. Okay. I don't know how many he wrote, but that's what we have. Wow. Well, your translation of Plutarch through the Circe Institute, uh, titled The Lawgivers, uh, only addresses the parallel lives of two individuals. Tell us about them and why you chose those two. Well, uh, yes, we, we chose Numa and Lycurgus uh, because they're both fun to read. I mean, they're mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating. And mm -hmm. for people coming to Greek, the whole ancient civilization for the first time or early on, uh, they both represent pretty extreme and uh, vivid examples of, of Greek culture and uh, of Roman culture. Although, as I've already said, it's not like all Greek city-states were like Sparta. But if, if a young person wants to understand Sparta and Spartan civilization or culture, which lasted for hundreds of years, the place to begin is with Lycurgus, the lawgiver oh. who gave them their laws, many of which are, they're all fascinating, but many of them are repellent uh, to us. Mm. Uh, and, uh, but, it, but they've also had a profound effect on modern history. Numa, on the other hand, is almost a mythic. Well, both of these people are, we, we think they're historically 
true, but there's so much myth that has grown up around both of them by the time Plutarch wrote about them that it's rather hard, and he even confesses this constantly, it's hard to sort of sort out what is really, what is true about Lycurgus or true about Numa, and uh, what is said about them that he is repeating. Mm. But as I say in the introduction, you know, what's interesting to us, and, and in this sense, he's very modern, I think, because now nowadays, of course, we view all history with a great deal of skepticism. Right. True. Point of view. But the nice thing about Plutarch is he's very transparent about his point of view. You know, he's already said, I'm, I'm going to talk about those elements that I think are worthy of imitation, and I'm not going to give you a full-blown history of this person. And even when he is, and he is at times critical of them, even when he is, he shows us, you know, sort of how to be critical of, of people who may have lived hundreds or thousands of years ago uh, without imposing our own modern, culturally defined uh, values on them. Right. Well, you talk about that in the introduction. You talk about the difference between judging the past and making judgments on the past. Will you comment on that for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, that's, as, as you know, Heidi, I mean, that's really very topical because we're surrounded now by, you know, we hear all the time about young people, particularly these college students who are, you know, making these wholesale judgments about people who've lived in the past and wanting to change the names of their institutions or tear down statues or do whatever they want to do. And, uh, you know, it's my opinion that that's, you know, really misguided behavior. Right. Uh, That the people who are doing this, like all of us who make judgments of others, uh, to go back to, you know, Jesus' story about removing the beam from your own eye before removing the you know, the splinter from your neighbor's eye, where it's an extremely self-righteous, arrogant, posturing kind of way to view the past, we will be judged, of course, in the same way by future generations. It's not as if, you know, we're going to be viewed by them based upon whatever their views of right and wrong are uh, in, in a positive light. Uh, in fact, all of us who are making these judgments don't even live up to our own aspirations for doing what is right all the time. Isn't that the truth? Oh, Lord, oh. have mercy. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And uh, fortunately, he does. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to go back to the whole notion of how to judge, I mean, what, what I love, and I write about this in the introduction, what I love about Plutarch is he's very... Um, he's very non-judgmental, really, mm-hmm. and uh, and yet he he does at times make judgments or implies judgments, but he tries to make his judgments based upon the results of that action. Uh, in other words, this action, and rather than saying this action was a bad action, he says, "Look where this lack action led. It led to a bad place." Mm-hmm. So. He lets the history, or, or, or he lets the account, the story itself, make the judgment. Mm. You know, it's interesting. I mean, Thucydides, in his famous history of the Peloponnesian Wars, I mean, he does the very same thing. He sets the whole thing up like an architect. He, you know, after the Melian debate, which was a 
a horrible action on the part of, of the uh, Athenians to go in and, and basically destroy the island of Milos for its failure to pay their tributes. Uh, he, in, it's, anyway, he follows that up by talking about uh, a disaster for the Athenians, uh, a time when they almost lost the war, which of course they eventually did. But in, in putting, in pairing those two actions together, instead of preaching about how terrible the Athenians were to do what they did on the island of Milos, he just follows it up by showing that a power that behaves that arrogantly and that ruthlessly is going to come to a bad end. Hmm. So anyway, that's, but those judgments, those historical judgments ought to be made, at least in Plutarch's view, based upon the, 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 the norms of the time, hmm. as well as uh, what kind of, out, what, what was the outcome? Right. Numa's full of that. Anyway, sorry. Right. No, this is excellent. Well, in your introductory notes of, of the translation, David, this phrase particularly caught my eye, uh, that there is an emphasis on character rather than accomplishments. Will you comment on what you mean by that in Plutarch? Yeah, I mean, that refers back to my, his concern for young people, his concern for, you know, for what he was going to say. When we sit down to write, of course, we, we have a, a point of view about the past. And, but when we write about the past, we're going to be selective. We can't, we can't know everything, nor can we even write everything we know or have heard. Right. So he is using his uh, knowledge, which is very considerable about these people. He really does his research. And he selects from that um, not the big events, the big wars they won, whatever, uh, that most historians or chroniclers of history will, will focus on. But he looks at those, often those little uh, words or those little gestures that he hears about that show their character show what kind of, per, what were their, what was their intentions? What were their intentions? What were their, uh, you know, really tries to get in, in a, in a way we would say the psychology or the in, inside the person. And, huh. and that is what really interests him. So he's not, he's not, it's not just chronicle of, you know, it's all of Caesar's accomplishments. It's, you know, what kind of character was Caesar? What was his intention? Uh, so in that sense, Plutarch is really very modern, huh. uh, very, uh, and we're fun to read because, you know, I mean, after a while, just reading about, you know, one battle after the other or some person's success. I mean, in a way you started this interview by sort of yeah. read, reading off, you know, some of the things that uh, I've done in my life. Right. But, but, you know, I listened to those things and, and that's not me. I mean, yeah, yes, those things happened um, mm. as they happen in every life. People do things, but that doesn't get at who who I really was and what my intentions were, uh, many of which right. were never realized. Right. I have a sign that I... I commissioned, painted for my son's room, a quote from Plutarch. This is to your point. It says, and it's speaking of Alexander the Great, he considered it more kingly to rule himself than to conquer nations. 
Yeah, beautiful. That's up in my son's room because that's this is that's exactly what you're talking about. That he's holding up models for emulation, and the people who live with great virtue and great strength of character, those are the people who, as you point out, they do stuff. If they go out, they might conquer nations, but to consider it more kingly to rule himself, that's a virtue. That's something to emulate, something to imitate. Yeah, well said and well done, Plutarch. Yeah, I know, good job. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, well, we all, probably all of us at Circe, and I know our listeners will particularly love to hear you, the David Hicks, tell us about the Greek concept of paideia. So, Tell us a little bit of what, what that means. You reference it in the introduction. Um, and for those of us who desire to cultivate Paideia, which you're going to tell us about, how does Plutarch help with that? Well, Paideia, is, as uh, you've probably heard me say a hundred times, is you know when, when a translator comes across the word Paideia in a Greek text, he really has to make a decision. Does he mm. go left or right? You know, does he translate this word as education or does he translate this word as culture? Uh, and it usually depends on the context or maybe what he's trying to bring out in the, in the writing, which will determine which way he'll go. But paideia in the, in the ancient world, particularly in the Greek world, where education began, I mean, the, school, the first schools were uh, in Athens or, or in other Greek cities, and, uh, or as we know them, schools. And their whole goal was to transfer the culture, you know, the norms, the values, the ideas, the great stories, the myths, the beliefs of the, or, or and, the, and the laws, the logos, uh, and the nomoi of the, of the town, transfer that to the next generation. And that was the paideia, that was their the kind of the soul, the soul of the city was being passed on to the young people so they would carry that forward. And uh, so that's, you know, that's what Paideia is. Uh, you, you might have seen the uh, essay I wrote for uh, the Circe magazine on, you know, I, I mean, is, is the classical education in the United States, is it really possible? Right. And it's, it's not possible in a classical, in a classical sense. It, we don't, you know, first we don't really have, a culture is now so, um, is denorming at such a rapid rate. We don't really have a series of norms unless, and, and we have a huge conflict going on between our traditional norms and then the stuff that sort of comes out of what you call political correctness. That we're trying to re-norm in so many ways. It's no longer a norm not to abort a fetus. Uh, it's no longer a norm for one man or one woman to marry and have children. Uh, I mean, those were the traditional norms for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Norms actually were, were strongly introduced by Christians, early Christians. The, our society, our culture is... Is attacks most of these traditional norms, and anybody who sets up a traditional norm is bound to be attacked. But at the same time, you can't live without norms, so they're trying at the same time to re-norm through legislation and other mm. things. This isn't going to end. I mean, it will just continue going on until there's some sort of denouement, I suppose. 
Right. But the point is, is that for this presents a particular challenge for education, classical education, because are we really interested? Am I really interested when I send my children to school right. in putting them on this roller coaster of cultural uh, renovation and change and you know attacks on nature and all of this? That's that's. Uh, that's not a, that's, we're not really passing on a culture. We're passing on uh, kind of dissolving reality. So that's, that's sort of where, and that's where I think the classical Christian movement and why a lot of families are very frustrated and why it's becoming increasingly difficult for right. young people in this society. Right. And how can Plutarch speak into that why why does plutarch matter today why should we read his work in 2019 can he in any way address those challenges that you're describing that's a good question and i'm not asking can plutarch solve the problem of education in america that's i mean perhaps that ship has sailed perhaps it's a it's an entire new paideia like you know that that's the question is more what does he have to offer in any small way into the wasteland, the fragments that we have shorn against our ruin, so to speak? Yeah. Well, I suppose, you know, I mean, we've all been here before. I mean, it, mm. it, it's not like we're, you know, we like to think perhaps because of our technology that you know, we're in a place that no one has ever been before. <laughs> but, but we're not. We're, and, you know, the... Uh, we went through this sort of cultural nightmare uh, in the early Middle Ages, and the the past, the rediscovery of the past, which we call the Renaissance, the Greek and Roman past, did a lot to revivify that culture and refocus it. And uh, and I think one of the responses to you potentially could be when when young people read Plutarch and when they indeed study the past, they first realized that what we're living through is not a unique moment. It, right. A lot of this stuff has been tried before. Like Hergis will, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, of uh, 20th century fascism and uh, communism in Lycurgus. Huh. And it, and it, it, it didn't work out too well. It didn't come out in a good place. And, and new Plutarch doesn't have to tell us that. We just know that. Mm. Uh, so I think one of the reasons we read Plutarch and Thucydides and Herodotus and Homer is that we read about, we see that it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to be a denorming, dissolving culture. We don't have to be at one another's throats. Uh, over these cultural questions and that in fact a society can't live without its norms and and then you, you get to the sort of christian side of the classical it seems mm-hmm. to me is that you say well what kind of norms do you want to have i mean are we really are we really going to launch out in this this uh voyage of you know to the end of the world to, to just continue this attack on nature and denorming and everything else I and mean, where is that going to take us where has it taken us in the past when we've done that and uh so that one reason you read plutarch i think you know, is that 
you, you, young people can see that it doesn't have to be this way. Right. It's, the other thing, though, is I think it triggers you. I mean, Winston, let me give you a modern example. You know, if you read Winston Churchill's histories, which I particularly like, historians are not very fond of Winston Churchill, but I like them because he's very much a part of the rhetorical tradition. Mm-hmm. He, I'm sure he's read a lot of Plutarch or he writes like Plutarch. He's, he writes a history which is, you know, faithful to what happened. But his emphasis is always on the character of the people he's writing about. And, and where their character led them astray and where their character served them well. And that is the kind of history you're not going to get in the modern world. But Plutarch gives you a, a template for that kind of history. And I think it's, it's a really inspiring. The other thing, it's really inspiring for young people. I mean, this is, you know, if, if you're going to teach history to young people, this is, I think, how to teach it. Later on, if they want to get their PhD in history, they can go into these very serious, uh, you know, in-depth studies of what happened and the multiple motivations for it and, and you know, really lose themselves in statistics and that kind of <laughs> But that's, that isn't the way to bring, or by the way, the way we're teaching history often now, well, first we don't teach it, but to either, you know, teach it through some kind of a social science approach, which is just breaking it down and making it boring, Mm. or teaching it as a series of uh, failures of the past. Right. You know, why why we have... The deconstructive approach. To be be very critical of it, especially in, in relation to the modern view of whatever it is we're talking about. Uh, Those are terrible ways, I think, to teach young people history. Uh, And I'm not saying those ways are wrong for a more adult audience or a student to look at, but you you want to teach children history so that something they can benefit from and learn from and and come away with hope right uh, for their future because it is their future it's not ours we've had our lives their mm. lives are before them and if all they're looking at is something that's rather boring in terms of looking at the past where they can't learn from it or something that is really negative and dark about the past and, and presents a rather hopeless view of where they're going with their lives or what they can do with their lives. Because remember too, if, if all they're seeing is all this criticism of the past, well, it, it doesn't take a genius to project their own lives forward and realize, you know, whatever I do in my life, those coming after me, are going to damn it with faint praise. Right. Uh, so that's not a, that's not a hopeful view of, of the human, uh, of the human story. Right. Maybe we don't deserve a hopeful view, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that's why to read. I think that's why to read. Krutov loved even the people that he's he's not completely in, in love with. He loves them. He's he's like in a sense he's like reading Dickens. You know, Dickens huh. is great to read because he he loves all of his characters, even the even the bad ones. Even the bad ones, yes. Yeah. Well, that, that goes back to the Lord have mercy comment earlier, right? You. That there is, there is a mercy throughout the, there's a restoration someday, some, everything will be made right. And, and it's paideia, right? It's the process of translating the past 
and, and offering it as a gift to the next generation that, that lets them know God is having mercy on us. Yep. Absolutely. Well, and we as Christians believe, I mean, all of us are created in his image and likeness and we may deface that image or try to repress it, which many of us work hard at doing, but it's always there. Hmm. And, That's right. uh, and I think in some ways, to, I, this is dangerous, but to put a kind of Christian gloss on Plutarch, I mean, Plutarch is finding that image mm-hmm. in, in the people he writes about. He doesn't speak of it in those terms, but he is seeing some divine spark in, mm-hmm. in everybody. And that's very, that's beautiful and, and very a good example to set before young people. Exactly. I really love that. I love that, the reference to the divine spark. And I do see that in Plutarch. Well, let's, let's make a shift here. Let's talk about the actual process of translation, uh, which is fascinating to people like me. I don't, I don't read any ancient languages. It's a sore spot in my life. I really wish I did. <laughs> so I'm fascinated by the process of translation. Tell us uh, about how you and your brother Scott did the work of translating Plutarch? Well, uh, first I need to say that Scott is the, he's a wonderful classicist. He, uh, he's the guy who takes, you know, Thucydides without his little Scott to the beach and reads, reads you know, just reads the Greek or the Latin wow. uh, way you or I might read uh, a novel. So I'm in awe of his classical uh, his language abilities i don't have his linguistic gifts i did i did greek when i was a student at princeton but i don't have that ability that he has so what we do is scott will take the original greek and he will make a, a fairly literal translation of what plutarch wrote and send it to me i will take that i will uh i have a couple of translations on my desk uh course the dryden trans the dry, so-called dryden translation which is the standard uh, you know the kind of classical if you like uh, english translation of plutarch and uh i might look at a couple of other modern ones although i don't have uh i had those in the case of um lycurgus but i did not have it in the case of numa and I will look at them and I'll say, well, okay, this is what the literal translation is. How would I state this in contemporary English in a way that we can make sense of it? Because a lot of times a literal translation, frankly, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. It leaves transitions out. It, it seems to be very, um, the, the illusions are so buried deep in the past that we don't get them. Huh. So uh, I will take a stab at um, creating a translation that makes sense and that it's fun to read, easy to read. I'll send that back to Scott and make sure that I haven't taken such great liberties with it that it's unrecognizable in terms of a scholarly audience. And uh, and usually I'm, I'm, you know, I have to say, I'm, you know, I'm probably batting pretty well, but he'll come back to me and say, well, Nah, you really can't do that to this phrase. This huh. is, but it, he always offers some alternatives that I can then work with to to change it. So that's that's what we do. And it finally, sounds fun. I mean, that sounds that sounds fun, and it sounds like you guys are a really good team. 
oh well we're brothers <laughs> we no we we love yeah. doing we scott lives in Brittany, and uh betsy and i went over there last winter it's been a couple of months with them and every morning we, he and i would get up early and go down to the kitchen and make a big pot of coffee and we'd sit over the kitchen table and just work together on this it was it was really a beautiful thing wow we've done this for you know for years even when we were both heads of schools we used to um do this kind of thing together that's that's where the emperor's handbook came from actually huh. i have that my husband loves the stoics so that's that's one of his favorites yeah it's a guy's book really yeah yeah. I mean, I've had women tell me they like it, but they, even they'll say, it's such a guy's book. <laughs> it is. It's like a very, you know, very Roman manly kind of reading, very virile. <laughs> well, it's basically, it's, it's uh, you know, Marcus writing to himself at the end of every day, and the message is always the same. Suck it up. <laughs> you got work to do. Yeah. That's right. Put your big boy pants on and head back out there and do the work. That's a good message. Oh, it's a great message. Important and message. There's a lot of it in St. Paul's writing. and mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's good for all of us. That's true. So just out of pure curiosity's sake, and this will be our last question because we're slowly running out of time or quickly running out of time. Um, tell just what is ancient Greek like versus modern English? How are they... You know, you allude to this in your translator's note, and I was fascinated by it. I'd love to hear a little more. Um, well, it's, I mean, ancient Greek is, you know, it's an incredibly nuanced, rich language, and it's one that deals with abstractions very well, hmm. which is probably one reason why uh, in the Christian tradition, I mean, the New Testament was written in Greek, but also why so much early uh, Christian literature uh, theology is written in Greek. Of course, the Nicene Creed, the creeds were written in Greece, Greek because, uh, you know, the Greeks had for hundreds of years already been thinking like philosophers. And they offered, you know, those those of us Christians who believe that there is a kairos, there, is the, <laughs> there was the right moment in time in which God entered the world through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, part of it, Certainly from a, from a Greek Orthodox perspective is that that's because the Greeks had prepared the way, mm-hmm. uh, just as the Hebrew prophets had prepared the way. Right. And so the language is very rich. Plutarch's language is particularly rich and difficult because, mm-hmm. said in the introduction, um, Greek prose is fairly controlled and limited in the vocabulary that it, that it uses and in the, uh, in the tendency to create new vocabulary. Whereas Greek poetry is very creative. New words are created all the time. And, uh, and it's just a much more creative expression. Uh, I suppose that began with Homer, Homer who practically invented the language. I mean, even, uh, even those who study ancient Greek can struggle with Homer's Greek because it, and we don't have anything like it before Homer. I mean, it just huh. seems full-blown out of his head. But that kind of poetry is, uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's very rich. It's very nuanced. And uh, the thing about Plutarch is that he, he writes prose like a poet. I mean, he's, mm. he's very creative and can be very complicated and difficult. The other thing is, of course, uh, the 
you know, the Greek, of course, as it was originally written, you don't have uh, you don't have sentences, you don't have paragraphs, you don't have all of this. So you have to sort of you don't have punctuation. So you have to insert this if you're writing if you're translating it into English, and you have to decide you know where the punctuation marks go, what. Uh, what they should be, that kind of thing. So you're doing a lot of interpreting as you're going along. Presumably in the ancient world, people were so familiar with this that they they just did it kind of almost subconsciously. But when you read Greek inscriptions or ancient Greek texts, most of them have been already done for us. We've already imposed the the punctuation and and the pauses in them. So, but what we have done is, and, and you see this in translations, if you read medieval translations, you know, Victorian translations, modern translations, what tends to happen is that you, um, you translate in a way that makes sense to your contemporary audience. So in the Victorian period, uh, you have these long periodic sentences with a mm. lot of coordinate clauses because that's the way the Victorians wrote. Sure. Uh, we we find that uh, cumbersome and rather difficult, especially young people do uh, nowadays. They're much they're used to short declarative sentences, uh, and then with transitions, you know, uh, transitional words like because or for or since or that bring you to the next thought and the next short sentence. And so that's typically rather than and the ancient Greek is I think more like. Uh, say Victorian prose where you have these long sentences with a lot of subordinate ideas in the sentences referring back to the main point. They're very beautiful but complicated. So what we've tried to do is sort of disentangle those sentences, put them into shorter sentences with modern transitions that, that capture the same meaning and sense of it, but doesn't, frankly, isn't the same. I mean, you, mm. you, you want to... You, every trend, there's a. I don't know if you're familiar with Ronald Knox's uh, mm-hmm. his translation of the Bible, but there's a wonderful introduction which I would encourage anyone who's interested in translation to read, where he talks about translation, and how difficult it is, and how complicated a process it is, and how we have to be, um, you know, we have to understand that we're not reading, we're reading a translation, we're not reading the original, right. And, uh, that's <clears throat> that is true of every translation of any ancient writing, and it's also true of our Plutarch. Right. Well, David Hicks, thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like we're just getting started, and we're already out of time. But thank you for joining us on the Forma podcast. And thank you for the work that you do for classical education and for the preservation of the classics in our nation. We really appreciate your time and your wisdom. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Heidi, for your time. and Thank you for the good work of Circe and everyone who's supporting it. I, it's a beautiful thing. I, it's, we're a good team. We're a good team. <laughs>
Beautiful. Yes. Well, and listeners, thank you for joining us on the Forma podcast on the Circe Institute Podcast Network. If you do not have a copy of The Lawgivers, The Parallel Lives of Numa Pompilius and Lycurgus of Sparta, uh, as told by Plutarch, translated by C. Scott Hicks and David V. Hicks, head over to the Circe Institute website and pick up your copy. Uh, you're going to need this, the translator's note. Uh, the introduction, the foreword by Karen Glass, uh, and the the text itself with uh, pictures and notes. And I mean, it's just pure gold, the whole thing through and through. So you're going to need your own copy. So head over to the Circe Institute website uh, and pick up your copy. Uh, and we will see you next time on the Forma podcast, exploring the intersection of classical thoughts and contemporary culture. I'm Heidi White. Talk to you next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.